real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today uh, is a discussion focused on the mind, trauma, and a topic I've yet to find much information on, death. For that, I have Dr. Shauna Springer here. Uh, Dr. Springer goes by the nickname Doc, which we'll get into the significance of during our conversation. She's a Harvard graduate who has become a trusted doc to U.S. military warfighters. Doc Springer is a best-selling author and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. She is the chief psychologist for Stella, where she works on new and innovative treatments for psychological trauma. Her work has been featured in numerous media outlets. There was a, a massive list when I was looking through this. Uh, but some of them are from CNN to NBC, Forbes, Business Insider, Military Times, Washington Post, and Psychology Today. And lastly, uh, where I was introduced to her work, uh, she is the co-author of Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. I recently had the other half of that story, Michael Sugru, on the podcast recently. So uh, welcome, Doc. Thanks, Nathan. It's good to be here. Um, you, we were just saying offline before we started this, just talking about kind of the things you're involved in. I mean, the, all the things I listed there, that's like a quarter of what I could have read off. <laughs> you got a lot of projects on the go. You're involved in a lot of different uh, organizations. It's quite the resume. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I always get a little embarrassed about the bio stuff. Um, you know, I just, I'm all out on this mission. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as chief psychologist for Stella, that's a huge part of my role to really, um, I see that organization as the, the cutting edge of really trauma care in terms of post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. And so, you know, we have about 40 clinics across the U.S., Australia, and Israel. And, oh, wow. And that's really my, my primary focus these days is we've treated about 7,500 people since 2020, launched just before the pandemic started. And, uh, you know, now we have around 40 clinics. So uh, that's a big part of my focus. But I also have recently added uh, lead psychological advisor for Magnus Works, which is this really cool, responsive app for first responders. And we're developing a lot of uh, insights around things people can do to, um, you know, stay healthy on the job for the long term. So okay. those are a couple uh, recent roles that are taking quite a bit of my time, but I love to stay active. Yeah. Well, and certainly once I post this episode, I'll make sure uh, any links or anything that you, you'd like posted, like we'll put it all out there so people can find all your work. Um, but maybe we'll start at the beginning and you can kind of tell us uh, about yourself, where you're from, and how you kind of got into this uh, field of work. Sure. Okay. Um, I'm from a small beach town in Southern California. Um, it was, before it was discovered, it was a sleepy little town that had a 4th of July parade and, uh, you know, AYSO soccer matches on the weekends. Um, and then a bunch of people from Hollywood said, hey, this is a nice little beach town and started kind of discovering the town, moving into it, and it, it changed a lot. Ended up uh, going, you know, to school with some of the child stars from, you know, Hollywood that people you would know probably from some movies and um, kind of became part of um, that scene a little bit, you know, in mm. my younger years. But really always wanted to live in Northern California because I love California and I love the hiking trails up here in the Northern California area and a little bit less of the focus on um, the image. Um, it feels like a better cultural fit for me up here in Northern California. So um, lived in different time zones, uh, went to college at Harvard back on the East Coast, lived there for a while, worked at Mass General Hospital, went to Florida for grad school. So lived in the South for a while and then moved back to California um, where I now have a number of interesting things that I get to do every day to support uh, warriors and protectors and defenders. Awesome. Well, what what drove you into the world of uh, psychology and talking about PTSD and the mind? I think, you know, it really goes back to high school. 
um, my dad would say, get off the phone, you know, do your homework. Um, Cause I'd be having these long conversations with my friends and would just find myself in the role of kind of like a, an advisor on a lot of the sort of problems and issues that came up. Yeah. Like for example, you know, in the, the young years of like lots of relationship drama, I would be kind of the person they would go to about their relationship dramas and kind of talk them through and think about, you know, who they were dating and things like that. I ended up in 2012, the same week my son was born, um, publishing a book on relationships called Marriage for Equals. And that book was about a decade of work that I did really focused on close relationships. And so that's definitely a big part of my focus, something that people don't tend to know about as much as the work I do with uh, warriors and first responders and trauma. But I would say that relationships and then, you know, trauma and um, the challenges that protectors and defenders face, those are kind of like my big three areas of of focus across my career. Okay. Well, and did you have any uh, family or anybody in the military or policing that maybe you also could draw on and see some of the dynamic, like what they bring home or, or I don't know, their relationships with other people. Is there any of that in your life? You know, my father-in-law served in the Air Force, but that is not the reason why I went into this work. Um, I really, I met my husband in college, um, but that didn't really factor in. I think it was a little bit, it requires a little bit more explanation. So um, nobody in my immediate family served in the military, but I was raised in a very military style mm-hmm. and my parents were unconventional. And so a lot of the stuff I was exposed to in my early years, like imagine being at a school with like Hollywood stars and yet every summer you're sent down to like South America by yourself to do work, you know, on mission and embed with different communities. Oh, wow. Um, That was an example of many of the things that my parents did. Um, You know, the first trip I was 10 years old, they sent me down to Mexico City with a photo and said, find this family in the airport and be of service to them. And so my upbringing was really um, service focused and very disciplined. I mean, early morning runs, um, you know, physical discipline, taking challenges, working through anxiety, all of that really made veterans feel like home to me when I first started working with them. So I'm in my residency year um, for my psychology doctoral degree, and I did a rotation at the Gainesville VA and started working with groups of veterans. And it was just, it just clicked. And then it was years later that my, my younger sister actually put it together for me. We were on a walk and I said, I wonder why it is why we recognize like a commonality between us, even though I've never served in the military. And she said, well, it's because we were raised like we were in boot camp. Yeah. And it was, it was the case, you know, that was definitely resonated. And so I think warriors, um, I just feel like they feel like home to me. You know, they always have. So I wouldn't want to represent that I've I've served, but um, that is a population that will always be kind of a core part of my purpose. Well, I think you still, you know, maybe you're not uh, serving on a front line in the sense of you're out there with the rifle and running around, but somebody has to take care of the people who are out doing that, right? So you're still serving, you're still in service. So it's a very important role because if they're not well, <laughs> they're not going to go out and be able to function. And you'd want them to bring things home um, that also destroy their home life. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, different ways that sort of warriorship can show up. Um, to me, warriorship is about a bigger thing than, um, to your point, you know, being on the front lines with a rifle. That is a type of warriorship. But to me, a warrior is someone who is clear on their values. Their values are service and, and sacrifice, and they are willing to make sacrifices and do things most people won't do Mm. in the service of their values. And so when I take that definition, you know, as you put it, it takes a different kind of courage to bring people back from war. Yeah. And I see that as my place of service. Um, I'm not an asset (laughs) within the the literal foxholes, um, but in the, the sort of valley of mental warfare, that's where I've created space for people to heal and developed a number of unique insights from my role as a doc in the military and first responder communities. Maybe um, we'll kind of talk about your nickname. Maybe now's a good point because you brought it up. Uh, so where does that kind of come from? And this, uh, just so people know 
a bit of this was explained in Relentless Courage in the book. Yeah. Uh, but maybe you could tell us here for people who haven't actually read the book. Yeah. So, you know, I think of two types of providers um, that are out there serving protectors and defenders. There's doctors and there's docs, and the two are not the same thing. Um, people who are doctors have spent a lot of time in school. I did as well. You know, I have a doctoral degree and a license to practice as a doctoral level psychologist, but it doesn't really tell you about the trust that I develop with my patients and the way that I support them and the way that I see um, see them as brave and inherently capable um, and the way that I want to come alongside them as a trusted doc. I really, um, I didn't give myself that name, but it means a lot to me. It was given to me by many, many veterans um, to begin with. Some of my patients during my eight years at the VA started calling me doc and really explaining the significance of that to me. They said, you know, uh, there's, you know, doctors and we call them sir and, you know, they, you know, have expertise. But then there's like these people with expertise that we call doc because we know that they will save our life. If there's any way to save our life, they'll get it done. Um, and so I want to practice in the way that docs do in the military, in that custom, mm. like trusted, like corpsman kind of like way to come alongside my patients in that way. And so it's just become the way that people refer to me to the place where if people call me Sean, I start looking around for my husband. You know, nobody even calls me that anymore. It's just Doc is kind of like my unofficial first name now. And I really feel honored by that because that is kind of putting into words how I want to approach my life's work and mission. Yeah. Well, I wonder too, like, so I guess the, the biggest component, and you, you said it a few times, was trust. Mm-hmm. So for people to open up and, and say something, they're going to have to trust you. I see that a lot with, uh, even the people that we deal with as police officers, we take them to the hospital and they get put into the mental health system. They have to talk to a doctor there. Um, I imagine they don't really trust that person. They're just kind of thrown before them and they either lie or just don't tell them anything, just sit there in silence. And then the doctor just kicks them out. So nobody's getting any help through that method. Um, how would you, is there a way to build trust quickly? Uh, maybe that's the, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right way to uh, say it, but is there a quick way to build trust with someone who's just kind of placed in front of you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think yes and no. Um, it's very quick, almost instantaneous when you are the kind of person that's a warrior that they instinctively trust. I go into a lot of this in my previous book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us all about what a doc is and, and how to build the trust. But unless you are that person that's worthy of trust, they will pick up on who you are in a nanosecond. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a lifetime of who you are that comes through in a flash of a moment that tells them whether they can trust you or not. And when you go into a clinical space, there are all these like little micro behaviors and interactions that doctors and docs do differently mm. um, in terms of how they set up the interaction, you know, where people sit in the room, how they start the conversation. Um, you know, basically like people can communicate, doctors will communicate. I outrank you. Mm-hmm. I outrank you. I'm the expert in the room. And um, you know, you are a passive recipient of the skills that I have to to heal you evaluate you. I'm going to assess you. I'm going to see what the problem is. I'm going to give you a name for that problem and I'm going to treat you. Um, And a doc really would have a different approach and they can pick up on that so quickly. Um, So, you know, unless you can back that up with genuine, you know, um, who you are at core, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so it comes out of a whole kind of philosophy and approach and really your very being is what they're picking up on. I see that a lot in policing too. So when you deal with somebody, um, I guess a good example would be when I, I've had uh, been a recruit training officer and you bring in a recruit and they're brand new and they don't know what is going on. And you, if you get some really 
hardcore bad guy in front of them, they can tell who's new in the room. Just by the way you walk, the way you stand, the way you talk. It's all the demeanor. Like you said, all these little things that they pick up on. It's human instinct, I guess, to pick up on a lot of these things. They're reading the room. Um, Even when you deal with informants and you're trying to cultivate somebody and say, hey, I want you to talk to me. I actually give a shit about what you're doing. You might be all murdering people, but I care. (laughs) So there's different ways to talk to different people. It's a lot of knowing your audience, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess would be the best way to say it. But yeah, I kind of see what you're saying when you're talking about the doc versus doctor. Um, You know, you go to a walk-in clinic and they're just pumping people out. (laughs) And it's just the next person and they're just very process-driven. Or you actually get a family doctor who you've seen multiple times and they come in and they have a conversation with you and you might talk about a whole bunch of things you might even forget about half the things you were there to talk about. Yes. <laughs> so it's a different relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think with protectors and defenders, with police officers, for example, with warriors that, you know, deploy, it, it is vital that they can assess these micro behaviors and expressions of who someone is, what their intentions are, what their character is. Um, their life depends on it. You know, their life depends on it. So they have this ability and then the training they receive owns the ability Mm. and they can tell in less than a second whether it's a job or it's a calling. Mm -hmm. And if it's a calling, you know, and the system must be safe to support it. So you can't be a doc in a system that's unsafe. Like that's an important point to make. So you can care about somebody, you can have insights to help them heal and see their challenges differently. You can respect them fundamentally and come alongside them. But if the system isn't safe and there are consequences for them to open up and disclose what's going on, it doesn't matter if you're a doc. So you got to have two systems. You got to have the internal system of who you are being safe, um, solid, reliable, with a kind of courage and a kind of mission for mental warfare. And then you have to have a system and a structure that supports that so that when they open up, there aren't any consequences for them professionally or personally, that it's mm. it's truly a safe place. And so that is why um, I helped to establish Stella, because it has to be both. We have to bring forward the kinds of people, the docs, you know, on my therapy team or the physicians that can surround people with amazing innovation, you know, in, in how they treat post-traumatic stress. But it's also got to be a system outside of, you know, the typical systems where things get reported back and there can be consequences for people that say, hey, I need some help right now to get back online. Is that like you're essentially a cog in the bigger machine of the whole system, right? Like you can take care of certain things, but if the rest of it doesn't really fit for that person or like you're saying, there's consequences once they've taken part in one one session or whatever it might be, then they don't have that trust in the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially, like, you could have the most amazing healing session possible. And if you document that in a system that's unsafe, and somebody says, oh, this person has a diagnosis of this, or, you know, struggle with self-destructive thoughts. Um, I just published an article on Police One about five common myths about suicide. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing a, a series for the Magnus Works app on the same topic because it's Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. We're taping, you know, this podcast in September. And first responders have a high degree of suicidal ideation thoughts, um, urges compared to most people, you know. And so um, I talk about, you know, why that is that's, that first responders have so many self-destructive thoughts. It makes perfect sense. Um but it's also, you know, if you document that in a system that doesn't get it and it has a consequence for that person, that's a problem. So you have to have the person has to be safe and the system has to be safe. And that's why at Stella, we have a bunch of um, really skilled nurse practitioners. They do our comprehensive assessments because they can look at people, you know, kind of like there are docs on the front line of assessment. Um, what is going on with this person, and then they're documenting it within our Stella uh, electronic 
record system, but it's not going back to a chain of command or something with okay. you know the details of what people discussed. So that's why I mean you kind of need both levels of safety. Your provider and your system both have to be aligned and safe. Well, and I, I want to get onto the uh, topic of Stella at one point here, but uh, just kind of going back a little bit to the article you were talking about. Um, I want to say that's the one I was reading this morning. I was reading through a ton of stuff for you. <laughs> um, there was some talk in there about possibly, uh, as you can find things through blood work, you can see like PTSD or different things through blood work. Was that on that article? Yeah, no, that's a, probably a different one than we're talking about. There's nothing, you know, in that particular article about blood work, um, but that is a potential uh, avenue for innovation is looking at biomarkers, you know, and there are a few different groups that are, are looking at that. Um, we are actually doing a, a huge study right now with NYU, okay, um, which is going to be the landmark study of the stellate ganglion block, which is mm-hmm. two injections into the, the neck to reset the adrenaline system. And we are using pre and post fMRI. So brain scans, functional magnetic resonance imaging, will show us, we believe, that um, post-traumatic stress causes a change, an alteration, an injury. And you can see it on a brain scan if you have the right scan. Yeah. And you can treat and heal it. Um, so that would be another example of a biomarker. Uh, there's also, you know, the potential for kind of salivary um, markers in saliva to show kind of elevated um, functioning on some markers of, of trauma. Um, and then you, you expand to TBI, traumatic brain injuries, and there's a number of other potential markers, visual, body secretions, uh, response to, to certain stimuli that I think are going to come very clear in the next few years in terms of really? which ones are the best uh, for really helping us be more discerning. I feel like uh, once you start getting into those things, though, like when you're talking about trust, I think people are going to be... You, do you think they're going to be scared to do any of that stuff? Yeah. That's kind of yeah. like, boy, you can tell someone is, you know, hey, in 10 years, you're going to have this. Well, now your insurance provider is just like, yeah, I ain't covering you anymore. <laughs> I think people are going to be scared. Yeah. I mean, there's, right. You have to have a safe system mm-hmm. using these tools because there's going to be no conceal and cover anymore. It's not, you know, no, no ability at some point in, 10, 15 years to say, no, I'm not, I'm not um, affected by all the traumas that I've been through when a biomarker test will suggest that there are some effects, there are some injuries there. Um, a brain scan could tell that there's an injury. Now, when you have a safe system, it's the best thing in the world because it's validating. You know, it's taking this out of some mysterious, invisible wound kind of metaphor and saying, no, it's actually an injury. And um, for first responders, I would want them to know that special forces units are already way out there in terms of innovation. Like a lot of the stuff we do came out of work that's been done in special forces units where they kind of have a different perspective that, hey, if I'm going to be on this kind of kinetic environment deployment cycle, okay, I'm going to have an injury from seeing that much trauma and having my fight or flight system like always primed and ready to respond. So between deployments, if I can't kind of unspool from my combat deployment, then I get that addressed with a stellate ganglion block and it like resets my adrenaline system and gets me back to calm. And so in special forces units, like it's a go-to treatment, has been for a while between combat deployments. And there's no stigma because they see it as it's a biological injury. It's a predictable result of the, the service, you know, my lifestyle and the way that I serve, and I just need to get it addressed. Mm. And so that's what I would want for first responders is let's just treat the injury before it kind of grows and builds and becomes, you know, a crisis and you're um, losing your marriage and you're separated from your kids because it's like so bad at home and you're operational at work. Yeah. But when you get home, it's like miserable for everybody. That's what I, I see. And so that's why you know, creating a safe and confidential treatment experience makes this an incredible technology to change and save lives. But no, in the wrong hands, people are not going to want any kind of testing like that because it's going to be very threatening to their you know, 
potential, their livelihood, their identity, and all of that. Well, who would not want a safe system? Like, where do you find the roadblocks? Is it insurance companies because they want to know, oh, hey, I don't want to be paying out for all these people who have whatever issue it might be? Is it chain of command? Are they the ones who kind of throw up the blocks and say, like, I, I want to know everything about the people I'm commanding? There's a lot of money out there to mm. treat first responders, and it's by and large locked up um, using conventional treatments that are not getting the results people need. We are making some progress with some first responder departments. Um, recently, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see some things kind of break through and I, I always wonder like, how bad does it have to get before people start accepting that they need to take care of their people proactively yeah. and invest? Um, and, you know, we're not talking about big figures in terms of comparing the cost of these innovative options with the things that are done currently, it's going to actually be much less expensive. Um, so you compare, you know, a procedure that takes one or two treatment sessions in the clinic and some short-term therapy follow-up with putting someone on medications they don't want to be on with no off-ramp and weeks, months, years of therapy and then sidelining them on the workers' comp system. Yeah, It just doesn't make economic sense. It doesn't make people sense. And it's um, incredibly frustrating to see that status quo be maintained. But yeah, I think essentially until the cost is addressed as the barrier, until we start resourcing these innovative treatment options, that's where things are going to get tied up. Yeah, and I think you see that on both the physical side and the mental health side. Yep. The, for whatever reason, um, and I speak on this from more of a police angle, but just having the proper belt system with suspenders and different things and moving gear around. Um, sometimes there's lack of foresight and it's getting better now. And there's a lot of changes with our service, but um, you see at other police services, they're still wearing things that are killing their backs. And it's like, mm. do they not think ahead and go, maybe if I just, you know, say I paid 300 bucks for this new belt yeah. uh, and it might save a few backs or I'm just going to say no, tough it out. And now you have people on leave right. and you're paying a bill for them and they're not contributing. They're not working. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it just seems crazy. Yeah. And they, they go into a tailspin when they get sidelined. You know, it's one of the articles I wrote for, I don't know, I don't remember which one, but it was about how career athletes and first responders and warriors have kind of a, a similar issue when they have their full identity um, that's wrapped up in the the work they do and the mission they're on, and they get sidelined suddenly with like a mm. career-ending injury. Um, it can make them suicidal to get pulled out of their tribe, suddenly you know feel irre- irrelevant to the mission, um, be isolated, um, detached from everybody, in physical pain, and then they're being jerked around by a system that. You know, didn't really look out for them in the first place and isn't responding in the ways that it needs to. Um, and again, that's why you know I believe we need to create and resource these safe spaces that are alternatives that provide a kind of care that actually addresses the issue and gets people well. Um, so there's a lot of examples. You know, a belt is a good one um, for many years. You know, the uh, idea of wearing boots when you're running, right? For you know, yeah, physical ed like. Having the right shoes, having the right, you know, running shoes with like cushioning and support yeah. makes a huge difference in the long term. If you're pounding on your joints with the wrong support, you're going to have these predictable injuries. So it does happen on both the physical and mental sides, but it happens so much more on the mental sides that people are kind of, they're disconnected from seeing how they need to engage preventative and innovative care. But I, I can see some progress there. I think things will change in the next few years um, based on what I'm seeing now. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, I know we see some of it in the policing world. Some people are taking some leadership and uh, making some of those important changes. Uh, I wanted to ask, because uh, you had brought this up about like the, the imaging and what you can see on brain scans. What does PTSD and, and trauma look like Compared, you know, when you compare uh, a healthy brain to somebody who's experienced a whole bunch of trauma. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. 
So, um, you know, there's a few different changes, but the one that uh, people usually kind of zero in is on the amygdala and the overactivity in the amygdala region of the brain as being associated um, with a heightened trauma response. Um, there's a, a set of, of predictable symptoms that people have when they've been exposed to trauma that has not been addressed, um, that they have uh, kind of a constant reactivity, a fight or flight okay. uh, state they often live in where they are not sleeping and they are flooded by anxiety, um, irritability, surges of, of irritability that are out of proportion to the situation, agitation, um, hypervigilance, kind of always scanning the world for threat. Trauma, when it's not addressed, will leave people feeling like the world is not a safe place and other people can't be trusted. And that becomes somebody's kind of defensive default position. And that is um, associated with the sort of hyper-reactivity and those kinds of symptoms that I mentioned, which is often paired with a hyperactive amygdala on brain scan. Okay. So do you think, um, well, maybe just part of this would be information and then I'd have a question at the end of this, but it's uh, with the police services, I know some of them send uh, their members for regular uh, mental health checks. So they go see a, a psychologist or, or therapist. I'm not great with all the terms. There's so many jobs, uh, but you go every couple years, depending on your position within the police service. Would something like a brain scan at that time, you know, rather than just going in to talk about stuff, do you think a brain scan at that time, like, could they actually show, hey, this person is, you know, they're saying one thing, but we're seeing another. Would that be possible? Um, well, it goes back to our previous conversation. So one of the articles I wrote for Police One a few months ago was about the ideal treatment program for first responders. And it starts with that safe place where they would get assessed by an outside group. Um, Bella, we have the, you know, the nurse practitioners that do those assessments outside of a cycle of evaluating people. So it's kind of similar in the military. Um, the psychologists that are within the military serve a dual role. They have a mission to get people well, but they also have a, an evaluative mission to assess for troop readiness. And the issue is that a lot of times when those evaluations are done, you've got people with a lot of power yeah. over your ability to deploy or stay on the job in the military. And there's kind of a similar thing that happens with first responders. So is the answer, you know, to force somebody against their will to get a brain scan when the system isn't safe? Mm -hmm. No, you know, the answer must be um, have somebody that has created a safe system, do the assessment and treat them, just proactively treat them for what comes up and say, these are the people, you know, we treated these people in various ways, you know, that we've done an evaluation and they met criteria for treatments that we offer. We provided those and they are, you know, they are, they've been treated, successfully treated. And, you know, here we're returning them back to you to get back on the line. Okay. Um, and that's how we, we do it in special forces is just proactive periodic treatments, but in ways that are stigma free and people can go in and say, you know, I need to get that treatment done and, and I'll get back on the line. So there has to be a similar model like that for first responders. So uh, with the company with Stella, uh, the work that you do there, are you partnered with any uh, military or law enforcement or do people just seek out the treatments on their own and maybe it's covered through, you know, whatever insurance they have? Yeah, no, like I said, we're making progress. We're really making progress. So some, you know, we've treated first responders from a hundred different departments at this point. Oh wow! Um, and a lot of those so far have been self-pay. Um, people can get the treatments typically covered through their health savings accounts or flex spending accounts. So they're paying for them with funds that have been set aside. You know, there's yeah. lower taxes on the fund. You know, you set aside for FSA or HSA. And the big move would be let's see if we can get workers' comp funds, which are plentiful and paying for things people often don't want and that don't bring them the results they need, 
let's get those um, kinds of funds to cover the, the needs that people have. We've seen um, innovative groups rise up. I want to really cite, you know, the Chicago Police Marines have been amazing. Um, they have really strong leadership, and those are uh, a group of Marine Corps veterans that serve in CPD, Chicago Police Department, and they've raised funds to treat like 15, 20 more people um, with the Stella ganglion block that we provide at Stella. And so they provide the funding. Um, there's, you know, 100 clubs. We've started to have conversations with them. Uh, we've started to have conversations um, with groups that uh, fund through um, community-based organizations that support first responders. We have partnerships with Green Beret Foundation on the military side, with Special Forces Foundation, with um, organizations like For Love of a Veteran that raise funds to cover veterans, and and they do so, you know, as they can and as funds come in, which have been hard to to get since the you know 2020. Um, but we have a number of partnerships and orgs that have funded treatments for people, and so I think the big next move is to have private insurance companies mm -hmm. um, begin to cover those as more cost-effective, efficient ways to take care of people. But yeah, there's definitely been progress and we're definitely moving in that direction. Awesome. Um, one of the topics I wanted to ask about, just because I've never been able to find a whole lot of information on this, but was just uh, death, reaction to it, how people process it. Uh, so when you uh, work with people, and you know, in your past, how do you teach people or tell them how to view death? Like, and maybe I'll kind of give a bit more context. So, as a first responder or military, you go into those situations. You're seeing people uh, that you know, or even on the other side of the the line, you're seeing people you know blown up, uh, chopped to pieces. There's all kinds of things that happen, um, but you have these big traumatic events, or you just have a family member. Maybe you just find a family member who's passed away from old age. How do you teach people how to process death? Because it just seems like it can come in such a, a variety of ways and it's inevitable. We're all going to end up there at some point. <laughs> so I just wonder like, you know, how do you, how do you kind of internalize that? How do you process it? Yeah. That is a really good question. Um, and it, it goes back to that piece we talked about, the recent article in Police One as to why first responders have so many self-destructive thoughts. Um, and it's because they continually operate in the arena of life and death. Um, just like medical school students read about these diseases and start to feel like they have these diseases. Um, the people that see constant life and death are going to have thoughts about life and death mm -hmm. continually. It's actually part of their path as a protector and defender. Um, and so when people say things like, well, any of us could die at any point, um, we could get hit by a car, that really misses the point. That is completely different from people who have it in their face all the time. Um, the sort of ability to understand, yeah, in the abstract, you know, we're all going to die um, is very, very different mm -hmm. from being faced with graphic images and actual death. Um, and then how people die matters, right? There's no two traumas are the same, Nathan, because there's a lot of individual differences and factors that go into the trauma quotient for any given event. Mm -hmm. For example, um, if you see somebody who is a colleague that has a beautiful family, um, that wants to live, that you're close to, that is somebody you look up to, and that person is murdered on the street by uh, somebody, a, a criminal of some kind, taken out intentionally, which happens to police officers, um, that is a certain kind of rage and a certain kind of trauma around how they were killed versus, you know, somebody dying um, in a literal accident um, that can happen, you know, in training or, you know, in any kind of um, 
deployment, whether you're talking about military deployment or just the work that people do on the streets, there can be accidents that can happen. Um, and so it's it's a tragedy, but it wasn't caused by human evil, okay. for example. Um, then like whether it, it hits you in that place of vulnerability matters. So the death of a child, if you have a child yeah. of that same age, right, is a huge trauma for people. The death of a dog has been the biggest trauma that a lot of my patients, warriors, have have experienced because for them, you know, a dog is like this pure loving being that there is no evil or malice in that dog. And when they are killed, you know, on purpose or accidentally, that can be a big trauma. So I think innocence comes in a lot, like a child or animals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. The, the innocence with a child, the loss of that child's future, the impact on the families, the unnatural um, fact of losing, you know, a child before they had time to really ripen and, and enjoy their life. Um, all of those things matter. And then the sheer volume, you know, I've worked with a lot of first responders who during 2020 and 2021 were out on um, casualty, you know, recovery kind of sent out because nobody had heard from an elderly person. And mm-hmm. so like there was a particular beat that nobody wanted in my community where there was a retiree community of people that were aging and there were multiple deaths when COVID happened. And yeah. Somebody would have to go in and find these bodies. Like, and so the sheer, you know, sort of volume of it, like being choked by the volume of, of death is a, a real trauma. And I think one of the mistakes that departments make is, is not allowing the public to understand the volume and the nature of some of the traumas that police officers see. So, you know, when they talk about, oh, you know, here we're doing like a little lip syncing thing to get, you know, the community to like identify with their police officers. It's like, yeah, no, like the the gap in trust, the gap in connection that exists could be more fully mended if people could actually understand what you're faced with, what kinds of traumas you have to see every day if our civilian you know, society. Because people go through that too, right? They want to identify with you um, through some of the traumas, through, through some of those experiences. Not everybody's prancing around, uh, like you said, lip syncing and doing things, um, you know, but certainly people have had uh, family members or, or friends or someone they know in their life die. And there's been traumatic events around that. And if they can identify with you as a police officer on scene, uh, maybe that's more of a powerful connection than whatever TikTok video is put out. Yeah, I mean, trauma is a human universal. Everybody has trauma, and first responders have hundreds of traumas, mm. hundreds of traumas, many more than a typical civilian. But if they don't talk about that with a level of vulnerability, then they become sort of deadened inside and they widen the gap between themselves and those they serve. One of the things that I really um, appreciate about Michael Segru that you interviewed is that when I worked with him on writing Relentless Courage, he I interviewed him for each chapter. He was so brave. Mm-hmm. And he didn't just talk about, you know, here's the facts of what happened. He was so courageous around this is how it impacted me. And this is, you know, as a human, how it impacted me. He did not take the easy path or kind of minimize the damage that was caused by all of the traumas that that he saw. And, you know, the things that we think would traumatize a person aren't always the ones that traumatize them. Sometimes it's not even the trauma of what happens. And this is a critical insight I want people to hear. Sometimes it's not even the trauma events, the exposure to death, for example, that is the trauma, but the um, administrative betrayal. Yeah. When you feel like you're part of a tribe and then... That was a big part of the book too. Yeah. You feel abandoned or you feel betrayed by the people that said, we are family to you and we have your back. Like You can sustain a lot of trauma when the tribe holds strong, but when the tribe defects from having your back, and makes you feel like 
you're the person who um, is an outsider, who doesn't belong, who is damaged in some unique way, and they, you know, initiate um, procedures against you, whatever it is, internal investigations, internal affairs processes. That is often the bigger trauma for many first responders than all of the traumas that they see. And I think that's a a piece of the story that we really wanted to share because a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah, I'm at, well, and I mean, organizations obviously aren't going to talk about that part, (laughs) but you have to have individuals come out and talk about that. And that was one of the biggest things um, when I talked to Mike about his, his part in the book and his story. That was one of the biggest things that resonated with me. Um, I work with our police association. I've also been a training officer, so I've dealt with a whole bunch of recruits. And that is one of the biggest things I've seen other members dealing with. I haven't experienced this so much um, myself, but I've definitely seen how other people are treated. And it's pretty crazy. Uh, I think one of the things that's missing for a lot of people in at least law enforcement is the camaraderie nowadays. And um, I know the the thin blue line is a huge uh, issue for some people, uh, a lot of our critics, but it's, I think that's what that, that kind of represents is that camaraderie that's there and that we have your back not to do big cover-ups and, and let people get away with criminal acts. Um, it's, it's the piece like, I have your back. I support you. Um, you know, and I think cops are the first ones to admit uh, when they've made a mistake and take responsibility for a lot of things because that's the type of people we are looking to hire. Um, but yeah, I think it's just that camaraderie piece that's missing. Saying, "Hey, we have your back," and standing by that even when the optics aren't the greatest, but you know the story that's of what actually happened. So yeah. I think organizations struggle with that. They really do. You know, the, the way that the press covers things or puts pressure on, on things is, is a, a factor, to be sure. Um, but it is similar in the military. You know, you can sustain a lot of trauma if you have a reference group that understands you. Yeah. And essentially, we're talking about a group of people that have the moral authority to say, um, that was really messed up and I get it. And we've got your back. Um, in a situation that you can't read people's minds, um, you don't always know, you know, what people's intent are. You have to make decisions in the flash of a moment. Your life may be at risk. Now, one of the big factors, I think, is that if you're making those decisions in high-stakes scenarios from a body system that is not calm and under control, then things tend to go sideways a lot more than they would if you had control in your own body. Okay. And so that's why these treatments to reassert calm and control in the Marine Corps, they call it the OODA loop. Yeah. So it's basically the concept of being able to perceive a threat and then keep your, your frontal lobes from going offline. You want to retain your executive functioning and think of options for responding that mm-hmm. are based on your values. If you lose control in your body at a cellular level, your frontal executive function tends to go offline. You tend to be in primal threat response mode and things tend to go sideways. So a piece of of solving this is dealing with the biological injury from the accumulation of past traumas. But to your point, yeah, the other piece is having a tribe, a reference group that has the moral authority and that has the will to support you because they get it. Yeah, They've been there. I think that was a big message that came through in the book, uh, uh, especially on the parts. I really like uh, how you laid it out. So Mike would kind of give how uh, give the version of his story and then how it impacted him. And then you give the, you know, the doc perspective and say, this is what's going on. This is why it's affecting you this way. And here's some uh, you know, ways to deal with that. So I thought it was one of the best books I've ever read, though just the way it's laid out. Thank you. And I know the feedback from other people who've picked it up uh, is the same. Like they're all kind of blown away by this. Um, I know we're coming up to the end of our time here. I think I got you for a couple minutes. I just want to um, ask you about uh, the authoring. So, do you find authoring is one of the better ways to get um, 
there to help people? Or do you prefer kind of the clinical side of things? Well, yeah, I write. I'm a writer. Like above all else, I'm a writer. Um, And it's to me the best way to scale insights Mm -hmm. is to write because you've got this thing where you've got all of these insights in the book. Um, And so I hear often enough from people, you know, the person I sat down with, the doctor I sat down with, they just asked me questions. They evaluated me. They scrutinized me. Maybe they, you know, made some interpretations, but I didn't really hear what they really think as a human, you know? And so I hear that so often that I thought, uh, let's try to create this new genre of really, what does a doc really think? So yes, Michael tells his story with such courage. That's, you know, why we kind of landed on relentless courage is that it takes courage to heal from those kinds of injuries, a different kind of courage than it takes to hit the streets every day. I wanted to share my professional insights and my humanity as a doc that was somebody who came in and has come in for people in that, um, in that trench of mental warfare and say, you know, here are the insights you need. Um, and we get, you know, so many um, reviews and letters and it's wonderful. It always makes my day when people place a review for the book that's heartfelt. What you'll see is hundreds of written reviews. These are yeah. not just people going on saying, five stars, on to the next thing in my day. These are people that are pouring their hearts out and saying, this saved my life or it changed the way I view law enforcement. You know, that was part of our goal is to really help civilians and people who support law enforcement and first responders to better understand them at the human level. So thank you for that compliment. It was, you know, a year of my life to write that book. Um, And I am so proud of the work that we did together on that. I'm proud of Michael's courage and what he shared, and I'm, I'm glad that it it was um, that you enjoyed it so much and found value in it. Yeah, um, definitely an impactful book, uh, and um, yeah, I've read some of those reviews. Like you can definitely tell people are uh, affected by it. So, um, just at the end of our time here, um, I want to give you a chance to just say how people can follow you and find your work. So, where's the best place to get a uh, get a hold of that? Yeah, there's a couple places um, I would say for anything referring to Stella, the treatments for first responders that I believe have so much potential. Uh, it's www.stellacenter.com. If you want to access, I've developed an online master guide that's self-paced and confidential to give people that really confidential third place to get the insights they need. Um, that would be Shauna Springer, S-H-A-U-N-A Springer.com. And for other information about my books and speaking and whatnot, it's DocShaunaSpringer.com for my kind of general big website. So awesome. thank you for bringing me on and having this conversation. Yeah, great. Uh, I'll say thanks for coming on. And if you just hang out for one second, I'll say bye offline sure. uh, and we'll get you out of here. <laughs> so, okay. Thank you. No problem.